Alrighty, well, if you have a Bible, we're going to be back in John 8 today. John chapter 8. And we'll pray. Father, I just ask you that you'll speak to us once again, Lord, and just ask that your truth will set us free. And I and, uh, just ask you, Lord, that you'll give us all a deeper hunger for the truth of your word, that we can just stay on the right path that you set us on. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're looking at John 8 again, and we're looking again at verses 31 to 36. And it says, And then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they answered him, We're Abraham's descendants, and we've never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? And Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, he says, you shall be free indeed. Um, I'll tell you where I was headed today, where I thought I was headed today, for most of this week, I'm not going to be headed at all in a way. We're still going to kind of almost backtrack a little, a little bit in a sense. So we talked several weeks ago, weeks ago about Jesus' statement, if you abide in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And we talked in that message that Paul warns us that in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith. And why did he say that would happen? It says because they would give heed, pay special attention. They would do what we're supposed to do to God's word, but yet they do it to false teachings. He calls it seducing spirits, doctrines of devils. And so we know how do those seducing spirits operate? How do the doctrines of devils, how are they presented? So they don't just come in the air, right? It's basically they come through men that are posing as Christian pastors, teachers, evangelists, apostles, whatever. They're men that are saying, I'm bringing you light and truth. And Paul said this, he said, for Satan himself trans satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light therefore paul says it is not a great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness in other words they're saying we're bringing righteousness to you we're bringing light we're bringing truth just like the devil does whose end he says will be according to their works and paul also warned in second corinthians 11:3 he said, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For he who comes preaches another Jesus whom you have, we have not preached. Or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. He says, I'm afraid that you hear something that you haven't heard before that's not right or whatever that you may well accept it. So listen, um, I'm going to talk today about something I heard. It, it was just going to make it a short introductory thing to make some comments on it. It just kind of kept going. So, But I would, if you, if you would, because I feel like sometimes there's just uh, a message, a spirit that is permeating conservative evangelical Christianity. It's just becoming more and more pervasive that I'm going to talk about, and particularly one individual. But if you would, turn to Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel, you got Jeremiah... Lamentations in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 33. The first six verses there, because this is a responsibility that I would say I have. 
Ezekiel 33, just to remind us, it says again, beginning in verse 1, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, When I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman, when he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning, his blood shall be upon himself. But he who takes warning will save his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hands. So I don't have any axe to grind with any minister, ministry, anything like that that's permeating the scene here in America, but this what I've heard, uh, I recently actually heard two prominent, I will call them prominent, Christian ministers or teachers say things, and both of them uh, really disturbed me because they were saying things pertaining to the gospel. They were saying things filled with scripture. They're saying things like, I know what I'm telling you is true, challenging even one, even challenging people to check it out. And I'm thinking, well, if they checked it out, they would find out you are really wrong with what you're saying. But you're presenting it like the way it is. It is. The one I want to deal with, though, now, it's, it's a distortion not only of the gospel, but also of the character of God. I'm going to name who the person is. It's Andy Stanley. So I don't know how many of you are familiar with him. He's the son of Charles Stanley. You know, a lot of us grew up, you'd hear a lot of Charles Stanley messages. Boy, those were really good and all that. Well, this is his son kind of gives him an automatic platform. So he's got a mega church down in Atlanta, Georgia, North Point Community Church. 36,000 people there. I think it's dropped down to 34,000. So 2014, that church was considered to be the biggest church in America. The biggest church in America. And that means the influence doesn't just stop there in Atlanta. It's going out all over the place. So now I think he's dropped to number two to Lakewood, I believe it is. Joel Olstein's church in Houston's number one. But anyways, uh, I saw a... Uh, Excerpt. Actually, I watched the message. I didn't, couldn't make it through all of it, but most of it I did. It's called, if you want to look at it yourself, I don't necessarily recommend it, but I'll, whatever, I'm not hiding anything. So the name of the message is Mix and Match. You can get on their website and see it. He spoke it just recently, April 22nd, 2018. And here's the thing. There is plenty of Bible being quoted throughout that whole thing. He knows the Bible. So that's not really the issue. But like we said, the devil knew the Bible pretty well too, didn't he? Quoted it to Jesus. Great job. But at about the 35-minute mark, I think it's about a 43-minute message, and about the 35-minute mark, he's got a screen that he'll have next to him while he's talking that he'll point to. And on that screen, it says there, what does the Bible say about that? It's got a question, and that's exactly what it says. What does the Bible say about that? And he asked his congregation. So to say up front, his congregation is geared towards let's get all the unchurched people in here we can get. They want unchurched people to feel comfortable. So he says, why is that a bad question? What does the Bible say about that? And he says, here's why. Because the old covenant says stone her and the new covenant says forgive her. He says, that's what the Bible says. He goes on to say, the old covenant says, pray for your enemy's death. But the new covenant says, pray for your enemies. He says, a better question would be, then what does the Bible say, is 
what does the new covenant teach? He says, or more specific, what does the New Testament teach? Or he says, or even better, what does Jesus teach? And so he raises the question like someone would be asking him the question. Andy, are you saying the two covenants in the Bible conflict? And he stops, looks at whatever, and says, yes. So he's saying the Old and New Testaments conflict. Yes. Then he says, the, in the Old Testament, you have prophets that rail on sinners and pronounce judgment. That's the picture he paints of the Old Testament. Well, in the New Testament, though, he says this statement. He says, sin doesn't make God angry. It breaks God's heart. Those are his exact words. Sin doesn't make God angry in the New Testament. It breaks his heart. But in the Old Testament, the Old Testament is just these prophets that are railing on sinners and pronouncing judgment. He goes on to say in so many words, he says, this New Testament message, if it's presented right, is just irresistible because it's God loves you so much. I'm saying that's coming out in so many different ways. So it's almost like to say, well, there's something wrong with all of what was, it's like to say there's something wrong with this God loves you so much. That's like saying grace isn't amazing. You can't say anything against grace. I mean, it's like, don't say anything about God's love. So here's the thing. He is distorting the word of God, and even worse to me, he's distorting through what he's saying by the way, what he's implying by these things, he's distorting the character of God. Because by what he says, he's painting this picture of the old, and there's this spirit has been around for a long time, so in a sense, there is nothing new under the sun. So there was a man way back named Marcion, and his whole thing was, we just need the New Testament. In fact, we just need the words of Jesus. We don't need all this Old Testament. So he's like, Get away with the Old Testament, away with most of the New Testament, except the Gospel of Luke, and even that, he's hacking it up. Because he's saying his Old Testament's just all this old, oppressive, put you in bondage or whatever. I'm saying, really? I'm saying, that's a total distortion. So this whole thing about saying that the Old Testament's just these Old Testament prophets railing on sinners and pronouncing judgment, I'm saying there is mercy everywhere in the Old Testament. And, but there's a lot of people that think that God's harsh and cruel and all that until Jesus comes and then all of a sudden God changes. I'm saying he doesn't change. Old and New Testament. So he repeatedly, in case you didn't know this, so Israel in Psalm 78, he repeatedly, when they were in the wilderness, they sinned, they sinned, they sinned. He didn't judge them, did he, right away? He repeatedly forgave them. It says that in Psalm 78, 36. It says they flattered him with their mouth and they lied to him with their tongue. That's what Israel did for their heart, it says, was not steadfast with him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. But here's God. It says, but he being full of compassion forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. Yes, it says many a time he turned his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. For he remembered that they were but flesh, a breath that passes away and does not come again. That's the God of the Old Testament. He's the same God of the New Testament. He hasn't changed. What about, I guess Nineveh doesn't count. In Jonah, where God's mercy came down on Nineveh and a whole, you know, a whole city, huge city, one of the biggest, the whole city repents and God has mercy on them. He didn't have to, did he? He could have judged. And he's getting on Jonah. He's like, Jonah, you need to understand. These people and these animals, I created them all. I don't, that's not my heart to destroy these people. And anyone that repents, I'll have mercy on him. And he says, he makes this statement in the Old Testament. 
Here, you know, when you make these overarching statements like that and you give your congregation or whoever listens to you out there this kind of impression of this is what the Old Testament is, then guess what they don't want to read? Guess what they don't want to hear any preaching from? Guess what they'll shut down right away? So he's saying the Old Testament is pray for your enemy's death. He's talking about the imprecatory Psalms, I would assume. And I'm thinking, okay, you're saying that's what these, that's what the Old Testament's about. I'm thinking, well, what about Elisha? You remember the story of Elisha? He's surrounded. You know, he's getting God showing him things that are going on with the king of Assyria. King of Assyria is like, I'm sending all my army out after that guy. I want him. I want to kill him. So he, he and his servant are in Dothan, surrounded. They look up and his servant's scared to death. Look at all these people. And he's like, wait a minute. You have to understand there's more with us than is with them. Open his eyes. Well, he opens his servant's eyes, but he blinded when he prayed. What did God do? To the Syrian army. He blinded them all. Blinded them all. They, they couldn't see where they're going. So Elisha leads them where? He leads them right to the king of Israel, takes them to Samaria. And there they are. They, and he says, Lord, open their eyes now. Bam. Their eyes are all open. The king of Israel, what does he want to do? He wants, he's unregenerate. Can I kill them? Can I kill them? That's what he wants to do. Shall I kill them? And Elisha says, wait a minute. You didn't even do anything to get them here. You had nothing to do with it. He said, let's say you, you, by your sword, you captured this army and had brought them here to Samaria. He goes, would you kill them then? And here's what he said. He says, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you have taken captive with your sword and bow? He says, this is what Elisha says to do. He says, set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Now, I think last time I read, I think Elisha's a prophet, isn't he? Doesn't sound to me like he's railing and bringing down judgment on his enemies. That sounds to me more like Romans 12, doesn't it? If your enemy hungers, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. So he says the old, old covenant, he says, well, the old covenant, this is why we don't want to say the Bible says. Because the old covenant says stone her. And he's talking about what we've been talking about here in John 8. All right. The Old Covenant says stone her, but the New Covenant, forgive her. And I'm thinking, is that really all the Old Testament ever says about someone caught in adultery? What do we do with David and Bathsheba? How did they escape? Because God had mercy on them, didn't he? He did. And he says the Old Testament prophets, they only rail on sinners. And I'm saying to me, it's like, You know, you can get out of the Bible, you can twist and distort it to create any impression you want to. And that's why I've said this a hundred times, I'll say it again, hopefully a couple times more today. We have to know our Bible and read it through and pay attention to what we're reading. Because to say that the Old Testament prophets only rail on sinners and call down judgment, there again, it's like, which one have you read lately? So, for instance, Isaiah, this is in the first chapter, Isaiah He's speaking to Israel, who is totally, they're totally out of God's will, totally backslidden. But here's what he tells them. Only calls down judgment and rails on them. He says this in Isaiah 1.16. He says this to Israel. Sinners, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. This is Isaiah speaking for the Lord. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice goes on to say, come now, this is the Lord speaking, and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. 
And if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Now, does that sound like railing on sinners? He <laughs> said, you all are in bad shape. But just come, reason with me, the Lord says. Just put away your evil. I'll have mercy on you. Right now, you are red. You're blood on your hands. You're filthy sinner. But he said, I'll clean you. I'll wash you. Willing and obedient, you eat the good of the land. In Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6, Jeremiah. And he's one of those most people would think of. He's that harsh guy railing on sinners, wouldn't you? <laughs> he says this in Jeremiah 3, 6. He says, the Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah the king, have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She's gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, Jeremiah, go rail on her. Tell her it's all over. Is that what he says? That's not what the Lord says. He says, and after she had done all these things, the Lord says, return to me. He goes on to say, return backsliding Israel, says the Lord, and I will not cause my anger to fall on you. For I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not remain angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God. And what's so harsh and railing about that? Now, obviously God's judgment eventually falls, but don't we have that in Old and New Testament? <laughs> I mean, I don't, I'm like, what? What are we talking about here? And I could go on and on. So the Old Testament, I'm saying, is full of God's grace, mercy, and love. Because that God doesn't change, does he? So, so what about the New Testament? He said, conversely, is it true that sin does not make God angry? Is that what he, you know, he's saying, well, read the, let's talk about the New Testament, the New Covenant, the words of Jesus or whatever. Well, I would say this, sin doesn't make God angry. And we're talking about, read, talk about the New Testament. And when he says Old Covenant, he means Old Testament scriptures. So we're saying, well, let's stick with the New Testament. I'd say fine. You want to talk about Jesus narrowed down to that? I say that's fine. Because we got the book of Revelation. Now, if that's not God angry with sin, I don't know what that's all about. <laughs> and especially the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in Revelation 6, we read this. It says, the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us. From the face of him who sits on the throne. And we'd be like, well, that's God the Father. He's like that. But it says, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who is able to stand? That almost sounds like a paradox, doesn't it? The wrath of the Lamb. But that's what it says in Revelation 6. So we're saying, he's saying God is so loving, it's all love in the New Testament, and he's so harsh in the Old Testament. Well, what's funny is, what is the, really the tribulation the equivalent of? I'm saying, so God said in Genesis 6, he says he sent a flood because the thoughts of men's hearts were evil continually. And that was over. He says, I'll never do that again. And he doesn't, does he? But really, why is, is the great tribulation happening on this earth? It's because the majority, and it's happening right now, the thoughts of the majority of the people on earth are evil continually. We're seeing it again. So instead of a flood, he sends the great tribulation. But in Genesis 6, 6, where God is supposed to be in the Old Testament, so harsh and judgmental, what do we find? If you go back and read Genesis 6, 6, listen to this. It says, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent 
of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And here's God's reaction to that. And it says, And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Now, that's not the kind of response you would expect. So they estimate that at that time when the flood came, there was three billion people on earth. And those three billion people, we know except for eight of them, eight of them, all other three billion, they plotted evil, it says, in their heart continually, rejecting the Lord, rejecting his ways. But the response in the heart of God is grief. So it said it grieved his heart. The NIV says his heart was deeply troubled. The New American Standard says he was grieved in his heart. And the NLT says he's looking on the man, mankind that he had made and it says it broke his heart. I'm saying we're back to where Old and New Testament, you see his wrath and he is angry with sinners, but it's also the fact that his heart is broken and he has to judge his creation. He never delights in that. I mean, doesn't it say in Second Peter that he's long-suffering? Not willing. They're saying people say he's promised his coming. He's promised all these things, this judgment, this second coming and all that. Why hasn't it happened yet? We just do whatever we want to. All that stuff is apparently in trees. He says, no, you don't understand. God's heart is not that he is slack. That he doesn't do what he says, slack concerning his promises. But no, he's, wanting to, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And there comes a point, though, just like it did in Genesis, just like it did with Israel. He pleads, he holds out his hands all day long and says in Romans, I held out my hands to a disobedient people that wouldn't come. And so finally there comes a point when we read this in Proverbs. God says it's enough. My heart, my spirit will not always strive with man and judgment falls. But that's not, that's his strange work, it says in Isaiah. That's not what he delights in. So sin, he says, doesn't make God angry. And that's what the New Testament teaches. Ephesians 5, 3 says this. It says, Paul wrote, but fornication, where it is to the Ephesians, and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather, he says, giving of thanks. For this you know. That no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And he says then, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, it says, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And Paul says, therefore, do not be partakers with them. Well, I think that sounds like God's angry with sinners, doesn't it? He says the wrath of God. And you read Romans 1.18 and it says this, For the wrath of God, and that's his anger, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And when it says the wrath of God is revealed, that is a, not a future verb. That is a present tense verb. It's not waiting he goes on to tell us, if you read Romans 1, how is that wrath beginning to be manifested? And what he says is because men did not like to retain God in their knowledge, he gave them over. He said, you want to think this way? You want to believe these things? You want to turn your back on me? These are the things you want to do? He says, I'll let you do it. And he goes on to say they turn their back on God and he gives them what they want. Just read Romans chapter 1. 
also saying sin doesn't make God angry in the New Testament, I'm saying then I would have to wonder what in the world happened to Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, I don't think that was a loving touch that caused them, it says, to breathe their last. Both of them. I'd say he might have been a little bit upset. Right? So here's the thing. Is everything that Andy Stanley says false? I, I don't listen to, I can't say I listen to anything more than what I just listened to. I would say no. That's generally not the way it works. And that to me is the problem. Because if you make everything false, nobody's going to listen to anything you have to say. I'm saying, I listened to the beginning. He quotes a lot of scripture and doesn't misquote him in what, what he's saying. But I'm saying, to me, the tone, if you listen to the overall tone, you're going to be opposed to the Old Testament. You're going to be opposed to teaching from the Old Testament, any use of the law. I'm going to get into everything that I heard, but I'm just saying that's what happens. Then I also watched a 13-minute interview that he did with Russell Moore. So he's been controversial for a while. Russell Moore is a Southern Baptist leader. He used to be, when I went to the seminary, when I was there, he was the dean of theology. Um, and now he's head of the ethics commission for them or whatever. But So the two of them are sitting down talking. And I have to say, I've seen this happen before. I saw this happen another time when um, one of the younger ministers who even lives here locally, was discussing with an older minister this whole idea, uh, I've talked about it here, these satellite churches or where you have branches of one church in one city and all of that. And I'm, I'm saying the older man had biblical reasons for what he was saying, didn't get upset. The younger man not only didn't have biblical reasons, but was pretty much pretty antagonistic toward him, pretty arrogant. And I'm saying it seemed this way when I watched this interview. You know, Russell Moore pretty much, he kept getting interrupted. He pretty much kept his composure. You can watch it if you want. Do a Google search. All you have to type in is Andy Stanley and Stanley, Russell Moore, and it'll pop right up. 13-minute interview. It's not the whole interview, but you can watch enough of it. So Russell Moore asked him, he says, well, at church services, he says, ministers will appeal to the Word of God, or this is what the Scripture says, like what we do here. And he says, he goes, he says, that's our authority. That's the authority for preaching. And he asked Andy Stanley, he says, but you say we shouldn't say the Bible says or the scripture teaches. And Andy Stanley's reply was, he says, well, that's an unnecessary obstacle. Instead, this is what he proposes. We should say Jesus taught, Paul taught, James taught. And so he says, start with the authority of the author, not the authority of the Bible. His reason for saying that is, is because the world has discredited parts of the Bible. So the creation account, he, he's not saying necessarily he agrees, I guess, but he's saying the creation account, the flood, no, no thing of a flood ever happening. You know, the whole creation six, we know that didn't happen. So he's saying the world's discredited that. And when they discredit part of it, like they've done, then he says in people's minds, they've discredited the whole thing. And so he goes on to say, though, the foundation of our faith isn't the Bible. He says the foundation of our faith is the resurrection. And he says, I would take every sermon, weave it back to Jesus, and then weave in the resurrection. So that's where he's saying he would start. Now, he says, okay, I'm saying his church is geared towards unbelievers. So I guess that is how he would preach at his church. And Russell Moore said, but 2 Corinthians 4 says that God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
Andy Stanley cuts him off. Can you quote that verse? And what does that say? And Russell Moore's like, look, the context is, he went on to say that we have renounced, Paul was saying this whole knowledge in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ is through the preaching of the word because Paul said, which he did before that in 2 Corinthians 4, which we'll read here after a bit, but we, he says, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, and Paul said, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. And so he, Russell Moore said, well, Paul used the word of God to bring knowledge. And he says, we must appeal as ministers, Russell Moore saying, we must appeal to the authority of scripture, not to the authority of me. And I'm saying, amen to that. Because I'll tell you why. I'm saying, I don't, I mean, whatever, some people may not, obviously don't like my style of preaching, but whatever. But my whole thing is I'm going to take a text and I'm not going to take a text and then leapfrog off into some other thing that has nothing to do with the text as best I can. What I try to do is take a text, say, this is what it's teaching. This is how it applies to us because it has, my opinion doesn't matter, does it? So it's what the word of God says. That's the authority. And that's really the point today. And so Stanley went on, and here was his answer. He says, Christians believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And he says, we don't believe that because the Bible says so. He says, it's better than that. We believe because Matthew was an eyewitness. Luke did a thorough investigation. Peter, Paul, and others saw Jesus. He's saying, I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead just because the Bible says he did. He says, I believe it because... All these men that were eyewitnesses said that, said that they saw him and wrote it down, and we have these manuscripts. He's saying, so I believe it because they said so. That's what he says. So he says, we believe Jesus rose from the dead because the Bible, we don't believe Jesus rose from the dead because the Bible says so. We believe because Matthew says so, Peter says so, John says so, and we have their manuscripts. So does anybody have an answer to that? You're sitting there, and if someone told you that, would you have an answer to that? So, this to me is where we have to know our Bibles. And we taught on the resurrection back when we were teaching on Mark and dealt with this very thing. Exactly. So, what was the first thing that Paul does when he wants to prove the resurrection to the Corinthians? Does anyone know? What's the first thing he does? Does he pull out the eyewitness accounts? Because that's what Andy Stanley's saying we should do. And that sounds reasonable on the surface, doesn't it? Well, I believe in the resurrection because Paul says so, dun, dun, dun. they say so, not because the Bible says so or the scriptures, and he would mainly be speaking about the Old Testament. But what does Paul do? If you would, turn over to 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll see how Paul looks at it. So to me, it's like, I'm going to follow what the Bible says, even though you're not supposed to say that, I guess. But look what the Bible says here in 1 Corinthians 15. This is how Paul explains the resurrection. He says, moreover, brethren, verse 1, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And what does he say? Look at verse 3. For I have delivered to you first of all that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to what? The scriptures. <laughs> Isn't that where he starts? And then he says, and then he was buried, and that he rose again. There's the resurrection to the third day. And Paul says, what's the basis? According to the scriptures. Then he gives the witnesses, doesn't he? And then he says that he was seen by Cephas, by Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren of once, and on and on. Then he was seen, verse 7, 
by James, then all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. So I'm saying this is where, you know, if, if you, things are being taught, if you don't pay attention, guess what? It's being taught. I mean, we should know better, right? And so that's where I'm saying we have to know the Bible. Because if you just sit out there and hear somebody quoting all these things, quoting verses, it sounds reasonable what they're saying, and then you get sucked into this error and distortion of the truth. So, he says, Christianity is not built on the Bible, but the resurrection. My answer to that, too, is the entire New Testament. Jesus is teaching. Paul, Peter, John, James, all the ones he talk about. Everything they say is built on the Old Testament. Paul told Timothy, he says, that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. What would that be? That, all they had was the Old Testament at that point, right? There wasn't any New Testament. He says, from a child you've known the Holy Scriptures. Look what he goes on to say. Which are able, the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus Paul tells Timothy, those Old Testament, don't discard your Old Testament. He's saying, that you read that, you know that which you do. It is able to make you wise unto salvation. That's what he told him. And so what did Jesus quote to the two disciples? They're on the Emmaus Road. They're depressed. They're like, man, we thought this guy was it. We thought he was the prophet. And they're struggling about the crucifixion. How did Jesus deal with that? If you would, turn to Luke 24. We can look at that again. Luke 24. So he's saying Christianity is not built on the Bible, but it's built on the resurrection. Well, okay. So here we have, look, look at Luke 24. And beginning in verse 17, and it says, he's walking with him, he comes up to him, and he says, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? And the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem, and have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said unto them, what things? Acting ignorant, but he says, so they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet. Mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. And they said, But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Now, why didn't they believe that? They had a witness, didn't they? That should have been enough. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But him they did not see. And here's how Jesus deals with this. Verse 25, he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in what? All that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And then it says, look in verse 27, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he did what? He expounded to them in all the scriptures, the Old Testament, the things concerning himself. 
So I'm saying if he's saying that, that this witness, this revelation is the answer, we believe in the resurrection, why didn't Jesus just at that point, why did he go to all the trouble of going through all those Old Testament scriptures and explaining and expounding them to them if it really doesn't matter, if we don't need those, if all we need is the fact that somebody saw Jesus? Because he will reveal himself eventually to them, what, what didn't, doesn't he? So he's saying the basis isn't the Bible. The basis is the resurrection and the witness. I'm saying you got that upside down. So he did the same thing. It wasn't just these two. And it's, this is significant. I'm saying we need to understand this is the authority and the importance of the word of God, the entire Bible, and having a good working knowledge of it. This is the only thing that's going to keep you from error. Because I'm saying I'm not that eloquent. I'm not that good. I read off notes. Andy Stanley's just sitting there talking without notes, rambling on, quoting verses. I don't know if he had a teleprompter or not. I couldn't tell. But I'm saying as far as smoothness of speech, as far as delivery, as far as charisma, he has got it all. I mean, that's why he's got 36,000 people and I've got a dwindling crowd. (laughs) I'm saying that's the way things work, though. I'm telling you. I guarantee you the Antichrist is not going to be somebody that can't, you know, get his P's and Q's in the right order. He's going to be very persuasive. I'm saying this is the watchman trying to give you a warning for what it's worth. (laughs) That's all I know to do. I'm fulfilling my obligation and hopefully we'll all fulfill our obligations, right? I'm going to say this, this is me off whatever. When I was 21 years old, I'd done, the world was my, where I loved, it was my playground. When I got 21 years old as a young man, I'm like, I've had all of that. I, I mean, what, what is it I want with that anymore? I, I had a, God just put in my heart a deep hunger for the Word of God. And I had available to me, I mean, I couldn't get hold of those theology tapes of Dr. Freeman. I went through those things three times and took extensive notes. And not because I had some religious spirit. I wanted to. Because my thing was, I want to get grounded. And, and he is the one that said, you need to have discernment. All these ministries out there, they're leading you in the wrong directions. And you need to have a love and a concern and discernment. And that just registered with me. And I'm like, okay, well, how is, you know, uh, your dad said one time in here, you know, how do, how do the people that at the bank, how do they know of false money? It's because they know what real money should look like, feel like, and be. And my thing was, I want to get grounded in the truth of God's word. So why, why as a young man, why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you make that a point and forget the other stuff to some degree? You know, am I saying you can't ever have any fun? You didn't hear me say that. I just went golfing the other day. Now, I didn't have the Bible in my ear. I'm just saying, I'm just saying that's what I think we just need to see. That's what needs to happen. So we're saying the rest of the apostles. So if you go on, if you're in Luke 24, look what it says here in verses 36 to 49. So you saw what he did with the two men on the road, Emmaus Road. Verse 36, it says, Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Well, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands, my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Now listen, I'm just saying, if Andy Stanley's right, that was all they would need, isn't it? I mean, he's literally standing right in front of them. Here I am, here's my hands, you know, and they knew it was him. Why didn't he stop there? And he didn't stop there, because look what it says. Verse 40, when he showed... 
When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still not the belief for joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate in their presence. And he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written. Oh, this has to, I think Andy Stanley would choke on this. We're written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And look what he did. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And he said to them, verse 46, thus it is written. And thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day that repentance of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. Tarry in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So what did he say? He's getting them grounded. You have to know it's the word of God is the basis for what you're going to go out and preach that you witnessed. And then when they did go out and witness, read the accounts in the book of Acts. They're laced with Old Testament scriptures. As Peter said, thus David said, you will not leave my soul or whatever. And he's saying, that's the basis that I'm telling you. It's a fulfillment of the Old Testament scripture. This Jesus whom you crucified, he's risen according to the scriptures. And that's the point. But Andy Stanley said Christianity is not built on the Bible, the Old Testament, but the resurrection. So let me just say a few more things. You can't even begin to understand the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, without understanding the first five books of Moses, especially Exodus and Leviticus. And the Psalms are quoted quite a bit in the book of Hebrews. And here, so we're, he's going to say we don't need the Old Testament. We just need the new and what is being taught. Let me show you this book I got here. You wouldn't want this to fall on your foot. Okay, the book, title of this book is, it's a commentary on the New Testament use of the Old Testament. Anybody want to borrow this and read it? You need to get it back to me in five years. So that's everywhere. It goes through the Gospels, everywhere, from, from uh, Matthew to Revelation, everywhere that the, New, the Old Testament is quoted by Jesus, the apostles. That's a lot of stuff there, isn't it? So you're going to take all of that out. Because it does, you don't want the Old Testament. I mean, man, you're not going to have much left to read, really. So the New Testament, beginning to end, is filled with quotes from the entire Old Testament. So when it says the law, prophets, and the Psalms, that's basically, that's shorthand for the entire Old Testament. And if you read, as you read the New Testament, it should be evident Jesus is constantly quoting from the Old Testament. And here's the thing about it is, Jesus never sits there and apologizes, does he? Or anybody, for that matter, the Bible itself, it never apologizes that they're just assuming that this is the Word of God. It never has to explain it, justify itself, right? The prophets would just say, thus saith the Lord. They don't sit there and say, well, here, I'm going to tell you how I know this. They just would say, thus saith the Lord. Jesus would just quote the Old Testament. So it's all assumed by Jesus and all the writers of scriptures. And Jesus said this in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. He goes, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. He's saying there's no conflict there. I've not come to destroy the law or the prophets. He says, I've not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, he says, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. 
So he is just the opposite. He is lifting up the authority and the importance of the Old Testament, isn't he? Yeah. He's saying everything's going to be fulfilled. One jot, one tittle. A jot, if you read Hebrew, it's like literally like a comma you would have, except it goes up by the letters. It, that's, it's as big as a comma. And a tittle, they have letters that some end right at the point there, and some of them they go just a little bit beyond, and that's how you tell the difference between two Hebrew letters. And he's saying that little bit beyond, that's the tittle. He's saying none of that's going to, all of that, none of that's going to pass away until every single thing is fulfilled. Everything's going to happen. And so when Jesus is confronted about divorce, what does he do? He quotes Matthew 19, 4, in, or in Matthew 19, 4, he quotes Genesis. He says, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he's saying, my authority for what I'm saying about divorce and remarriage it's not something I'm making up. He's saying it comes from the word of God. Genesis, clear back there. And when the Sadducees, who were the liberals, sort of saying, well, you can't, you don't, you have to be able to reach the liberals. When they want to debate with Jesus on the resurrection because they didn't believe in a resurrection, how does he answer them? Here's what he says. And we need to listen to this. He says, are you not therefore mistaken? So they're wrong. He's saying you're wrong. He says, because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. And I'm saying we don't want to be mistaken, do we, in these end times. So we need to know the word of God and know it rightly. And that comes by being willing to live what it says, and then God will give you more light. That's the way it works. And he was on then to quote Moses to the Sadducees. He says, but concerning the dead, that they rise... Have you not read in the book of Moses? So when Jesus wants to prove the resurrection, he says, go back to Moses and read him. He goes, have you not read in the book of Moses in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And he said, he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. He says, therefore, you are greatly mistaken. He tells them, mistaken because they don't know the word of God. That's what he says. And so people will say, well, don't quote the Old Testament scriptures to an atheist or an unbeliever because they don't believe it's the word of God starts somewhere else. Well, let me just say this. When I would go out on the streets, I would meet people that were antagonistic from um, college, that they'd learn this stuff, I guess, over at UofL. I don't know where they learn it from. And they'd start trying to throw all this stuff in your face. And God, God will give you wisdom in how to answer them and diffuse them in that sense. But that doesn't mean because these guys, and I've had people say, I don't believe the Bible. Or that doesn't, you know, so what? <laughs> Not in the sense like, so what? But I'm saying it really, I wouldn't be that way with them, like arrogant, like, well, so what? But I'm just saying, in my mind, I'm thinking, here's the thing. It doesn't matter what you believe because you are in darkness and you're blind. Anyways, there's no way you can believe it. So the point is, when you're talking to an unbeliever, the point is not what they believe. Like I said, they can't believe anything, can they? They really can't. <laughs> We've seen that. But what matters is the word of God. Because when it's spoken with the power of the Holy Spirit, that's the key. If you have an anointing on the word of God and the power of the Spirit, and he is open in that person's heart, it will break through all of their unbelief. Hebrews 4 says, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. 
I'm saying it doesn't matter what they say they don't believe. If you get the wisdom from the Lord and present the word in the right way, it'll cut right through all that unbelief. And they can't help it <laughs> if, if he's chosen to save them. Because who in here had a heart for God? Nobody did. Anyone sitting here thinks, well, man, I just always had a heart for God. That's why. I, no, you didn't. You're kidding yourself. We're all blinded and didn't care. And anyways, so we're saying, how does faith to believe in the Lord Jesus come? Romans 10, we know this. It says, Paul said, how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how should they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear? He says, without a preacher. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then Paul says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Well, when he's saying that, what was the word of God to Paul? So he preached from only the word of God, the only one they had at the time, and that would have been the Old Testament. So Rome was a Gentile church. And at the very beginning of the book of Romans, Paul says this. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's telling these Gentiles, the Romans, he's saying the gospel that I'm preaching, it comes from the Old Testament. That's where he promised it. That's where I got it from. That's where he starts with them from right there. And when he wrote to the Thessalonians, another Gentile church, he said this in 1 Thessalonians 2. He says, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing because he said, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, he said, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectively works in you who believe. So what was this word of God he preached to the Thessalonians that he said, you received it as the word of God. Turn to Acts 17 and we'll see that. Acts 17, beginning in verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, the Old Testament, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ, the one of the Old Testament. And some of them, some of them were persuaded. A great multitude of the devout Greeks, that's Gentiles, and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded became envious and took some of the evil men from the marketplace, gathering a a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. So he reasoned from the word of God, the Old Testament. So what was the difference between those who were persuaded and those who were not? Because they all heard the same thing, didn't they? They all heard the Old Testament scriptures, the word of God, which is what he reasoned with them from. Three days, the apostle Paul did, three Sabbaths reason and explaining them so why didn't he just tell them i've seen the resurrected lord because he had why didn't he just tell them that if that's all they needed to know because the basis for what we believe is never a vision never a dream never a voice it's always this isn't it 
that, that's just where it's got to be at. The written word of God, Old and New Testament. So the difference between those that were persuaded and those that weren't was the Holy Spirit opened the hearts of the Gentiles to receive the word as truth. And the rest, he didn't. And they couldn't see it. So if you would, this will be the last place we'll turn today. If you would turn over to 2 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians 3. And look what it says. 2 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 2. So Paul says, in other words, I'm saying it's the written word. It's also the Spirit of God. That is what lets a person know. It's not all this reasoning fancy way of presenting things. It's the word of God with the spirit is what opens a person's heart and causes them to be saved. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 2, you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. He says, clearly you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but how was it written? By the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on your tablets of flesh, that is of the heart. And we have such trust through Christ towards God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency, he says, is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. And how does he do that? How are they sufficient ministers? Not of the letter, but what? Of the Spirit. So it's the Spirit working through Paul, because the letter will kill, he says, but the Spirit will give life. And look down in verse 12. He says, Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded. For until this day, that same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. So the reason they can't receive it, it's not because they don't understand the words. There's a veil there, isn't there? Because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom, but we all with unveiled face. God has to take the veil away, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So only the Holy Spirit, he's saying there, can take away that veil to where that word becomes life. And, you, and that change takes place. And to cause anybody to accept the word of God, and if you just bear with me here, let's go to chapter 4 and read the first six verses. He says, because of what I've just said, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, nor walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. In other words, we present the truth and trust God to make it real to you. But by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. He says, but even if our gospel is veiled, it can't hear it, can't receive it. It is veiled to those who are perishing Whose minds, who is blinded? The God of this age has blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for his sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So he's saying... 
It's by administration of the Spirit, and He is the one that causes His light, the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, through the preaching of the Word and the power of the Spirit, to come and shine in any man's heart. And so the others just can't see. And that's why I say it's not a matter of trying to figure out how am I going to present the gospel to this person. I mean, I'm saying some of that's all right, but it's not going to work unless it's the Word of God you're presenting to any unsaved person and through the power of the Spirit. It has to be both, doesn't it? The Spirit works through the Word. That's in essence what Paul's telling us there. And so here's the thing. Here's the warning to kind of sum things up. I'm saying, I'm saying this even for myself. We don't know the Bible like we think we do. And I've seen this happen. I mean, I'm, not, I'm just taking this one thing as a test case. I mean, I mean, you make yourself open game just like I do. I'm out on the Internet. If somebody wants to criticize me, what can I say? I'm out there open game. It's not like they're coming, sneaking in here, taking notes. So this guy's going to preach and say these things and have these interviews over the thing. I'm not picking on him, whatever, and I'm not picking on him personally. I don't know him. He may be a great guy to be around for all I know, but I'm saying what he's saying. But a national figure, I've seen this happen way too many times. Or somebody that has gravitas. Let him that has ears hear what I'm saying. They say something that contradicts what we've been taught, and all of a sudden, oh, that makes sense. And people start following things, and they go away from it because that is spoken with an air of authority, charisma, and the crowd is moved. I want to finish with this. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I read this a while back. He says this, he says, We have reached the stage where we see the absolute necessity for some external objective authority. In other words, he's saying it's got to be something external and objective, the Word of God. He says, Not my reason, not my feelings, or the traditions of men, which ultimately are but the outcome of reason and feelings. And he goes on to relate something that happened to him that I think I want to tell you about that I thought illustrates his point clearly. So he said he was traveling on a train. That's the way he would get from one city to another back in the day. And he said he's reading the book and he says suddenly there's this big commotion in the compartment of the train he was in. And he sees all these people standing around this man who he sees, you know, is obviously in trouble. So he didn't go right over as soon as all of they did, but eventually put his book down and he walked over and he said, there is a man that's having an epileptic fit. And he notices he's struggling, he's changing color, foaming at the mouth. And Dr. Jones walks up there, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he realizes these people had reached a decision. They said there's only one thing to do. They'd all decided they're going to stop the train at the next station, get an ambulance, and get that man to a hospital that they knew was, was nearby. Because he said all these people are looking at what's going on with this guy, and they thought he'd had a stroke or he'd had a very severe heart attack. Here's what, I don't know if you all know this or not, but Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's known for being a preacher. He's a great preacher and a pastor. But before all of that, he was a very good doctor. He was on his way to making a ton of money. Married a woman that was the same way. They both, he walked away from a fortune. (laughs) The equivalent of smart man, genius, all this promise. So he knew what he was looking at there. So he heard the people, what they were planning to do. And he said to himself, he says, I got to make a decision. And so here's what he's saying. Here's his own words. He says, what should I do? It was quite clear to me that this man was not in any danger at all in regards his life. He was suffering from an epileptic fit, as he had probably done many times before. And he said, I knew that the man, when he came around, would be very much annoyed if he found himself in a hospital. He said, so I decided that in the interest of the man, I would intervene. 
He said, but then I had to make a second decision. Decision: Should I tell them that as it happened, I did know something about such matters, or should I not tell them? In other words, should I tell them I'm a doctor, that's why I know what I'm saying, or not? And he says, well, not desiring to be involved in a delay, which would make me late for my preaching engagement that afternoon, I decided that I would not give them any indication as to who or what I was. So I simply said to them quite firmly, no, you must not do this. It's quite unnecessary. This man is suffering from an epileptic fit and will be all right in a short time, and he will be very annoyed if you put him in the hospital. And he said, I added, there is no danger whatsoever. (laughs) And he said, they looked at me with considerable doubt and hesitation, but I could see that I was making an impression, so I persisted. And he said, and after a while, I was able to persuade them. I assured them the man would soon regain consciousness, which of course he did, and eventually he left the train with me at South End, which is where he was going, as I had anticipated he would do, and he went home unaided. That was his story, and he went on to say this, or write this, I read it. He said, here were a number of people, we were all strangers, deciding to do something. He said, I alone, for they all agreed about what they were going to do, he said, I was alone, though, and able to persuade them not to act. And he said, I succeeded because they detected the note of authority in what I was saying. They didn't know the cause of the man's trouble, but suddenly someone spoke with authority and says, all is well. You don't need to do that. You don't need to stop the train. You don't need to send for an ambulance. You don't need to take him to the hospital. He will soon recover. And he said, and they listened to me. They accepted my opinion and acted upon it. The point is that they did not know the basis of my authority. They didn't know who he was. And he says, despite their lack of knowledge, they listened to me. They changed their opinion and they acted on my advice. And he says, the material point that emerges from this whole incident is that without knowing the basis of the authority, they are ready to listen to an authoritative statement. Is not that the very thing that has happened? He said, it explains why the cults are succeeding today. They speak with authority. They speak with certainty. The people in their bewilderment, when they hear a word of authority, something spoken definitely, believe it. They accept it and they act upon it, but they do not know the basis of authority. You all with me? He says, what is needed today is not merely a note of authority, but the authority which leads to the authoritative statement. There are many people in the world who are ready to make dogmatic pronouncements and speak with great certainty and an assurance born of nothing but their own self-confidence and sometimes their delusions. And he says that is where the danger arises. He says people are ready to listen as these people listen to me in the train without knowing the basis of the authority. He says, I was glad they did. And yet he said at the same time, there was to me something pathetic about it because it showed this terrible danger. He says, what's the answer? It's found in the Bible. He says, we all therefore have to face this ultimate and final question. Do we accept the Bible as the word of God, as the sole authority in all matters of faith and practice, or do we not? Now, I thought that was a good way of making the point. So I read it and didn't put it in my own words. That's the warning. 
He's saying there are people that, like him, he's saying, I'm telling these people what to do. They had a course they were going to go on, and on really no authority at all, he's saying they changed it all because I spoke with authority, and I'm saying that's what's going to be happening more and more and more. These people that speak with authority, they speak eloquently. They speak, I'm saying it's right there. The Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter days men will give heed, pay attention to seducing spirits. Seducing spirits and doctrines of devils because it's going to please them what they're hearing. It just sounds a lot better than what I've heard before. So we need to be teachable, right? But we don't need to be gullible. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, we got to get back to reading our Bibles more, folks. We do. He says, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples truly, and you will know the truth, and the truth will not only make you free, it will keep you free. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for the word that you've given us, and we just thank you for the entire Bible, the revelation of yourself and that we can trust that revelation that's been given to us. We also thank you, Lord, that you've opened our minds and our hearts to be able to see and receive the Word of God for what it is, and that we can, through that, see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, what he's done for us, and his sacrifice that he made on our behalf. And for anyone here, Lord, that hasn't done that, I just ask you'll open their eyes, Lord, and that you'll have mercy on them and take the veil away from their hearts, that they too can see their condition, their need for you, and cry out for you to save them. I do ask you to do that, Father. And we're just thankful for this time together that we can be here, and I just ask you'll continue to bless as we worship you in closing here. And we do all that in Jesus' name. Amen.